Kia ora and welcome to Circuit Cast. My name is Robbie Hancock, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Berlin based New Zealand artist Zach Steiner Fox. Zach, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Robbie. So, we're talking today because you have a collection of video about to go up on Circuit, and we wanted to talk a little bit about your practice and how you came to make these works. I thought it would be interesting to start where. I first saw your works, and it was the first awareness that I had of your practice with Gloria Knight, Latent Cosmic Power. And it was like a very installation and sculptural-based show, which I haven't seen much of necessarily since then. Do you want to talk a bit about your sort of relationship with installation and video and the transition between those two things, or if you think those two things are sort of in an A to B timeline at all? Um, yeah, there was sort of like two main reasons why there was the shift. When I was in Auckland making that show specifically, I was living in this giant warehouse and so I had a ton of space. It's just truly like the space to make large scale works and like have things lying around where now I've got like a four meter by four meter bedroom, but like taken up mostly by a bed. So to do things of that scale is a little more difficult. And similarly, video works were easier to transport. If I had a show back in New Zealand and I was living here or I was living in New York for a while, it was just like logistically easier. But also when I got the opportunity to go on this residency to Bada Artists Residency in Sausalito, through Artspace Aotearoa, Adnan, who was the director at the time, suggested that I should try my hand in performance, which was something I'd really wanted to do anyway. Through conversations with him, we decided that great way to break into that or like try that out for the first time would be to do video performance so that I could play around, do some editing in a different way, which like, yes, you have you have that barrier between yourself and audience as a performer by mediating it. Eh? Yeah, I'd be able to take a little more care setting up, which sort of quelled a lot of my nerves around diving in the deep end with performance-based stuff. But I definitely have recently, or the past like year or so, been getting more interested in getting back into sculpture and installation kind of things. It'll probably not be on the same scale as you saw at Leighton Cosmic Power, because that was like full room divider vibes <laughs> um, and so the luxury of space uh, and i know a lot of stuff what i've done has scaled down quite a lot since having huge messy studio spaces yeah it's crazy how much of a difference it makes and also yeah being an art school you have an obscene access to resources that you otherwise wouldn't i could like wander into the ceramic studio and be like, today I'm a ceramicist. I want to make blah and you've got a technician to help you and like most of the materials there at least to like play around a little bit. But here I don't have the same sort of networks and then like trying to explain some abstract sculpture work I want to make in my busted German to <laughs> some uh, like yeah technician here not even technician but like woodworker or something like that wood carpenter would could be like a fun recipe for disaster but sort of like a 
I don't necessarily have the like resources to just be like, yeah, let's see how that one turns out. <laughs> if it's uh, lost in translation, that's fine. You mentioned the Vardu residency in Sausalito, and mm -hmm. I've seen that one of the works that came out of that residency is going to be up on the circuit site, Popular Glory. Is that the one? Yes. Do you want to talk through that piece of work and how the residency informed that for you? I guess like at the very core of it, I have a huge passion for horror. And so being on this residency, it basically felt like a Dario Argento set or something, which really tickled my fancy. And that it was very ornate and decorative and all of that. And then being in... Sausalito and like so close to San Francisco with this sort of huge living monument to a lot of queer history and things like that. It kind of felt right to explore the like intersection of this like campy 70s horror and like exploring queer histories kind of felt like it just came together. It's, it's a really cinematic work. It's very much leaning hard into the filmic reference. And then also at the same time, you play around with your image quite a lot. And in this particular video, you've got shaved eyebrows and red eyes. Hearing you talk about sort of this performance aspect of your work, which I don't think I necessarily like, that's not the first thing I come to when I look at video work all the time but seeing the ways in which you present body and present image and those sorts of references, how that's played in like a cinematic language, I think is like quite interesting. Yeah, I guess also it was sort of a bit of a personal journey for me as well in terms of unraveling these ideas I had around my own queer identity and stuff, which like there was a lot of horror I felt at kind of this looming inevitability that I would, it was something I was going to have to deal with at times when I was uh, less comfortable with it. Does that sort of make sense? Like my queerness throughout my life from childhood, basically, when I became aware of it, felt like this dreadful inevitability that I was going to one day have to face. I just keep like putting off dealing with that and like not think about it, repressive, whatever, da 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 da. And so it was kind of a project in which, in part, I could like honor that horror and in a way vanquish it, I guess horror as a genre sort of lends itself to like, a horrendous suspense or the sort of like feeling of anxiety of that kind of horror that you grow up as like a young queer person that I'm going to get found out. I'm going to, there's fear in a lot of sort of just your everyday, there's fear in how you act and that being read and there's fear in being in certain circles of people dread when you've got certain family members coming around who you know will always say that like real yuck thing. <laughs> yeah no completely and it's sort of I think a lot of the for me a lot of the sort of like analogies around horror that I hear when it comes to sort of like queer identity is this like societal violence that we're at threat of hate crime or like being like physically attacked in some sort of way where a lot of it for me was yeah, this sort of 
internal dread and in that way yeah this sort of like hiding from this mike michael myers like slasher kind of like every time you think you've like knocked him down like pushed him out the window whatever he's dead and then you like go to look out the window and it's like he's gone and you're like shit i'm still there and i still have to deal with it yeah and i guess it's like a different thing as well of where you identify yourself as a queer person like in, in watching horror movies and watching it's like okay who am i identifying with where am i in this movie it's different to sort of evil in different genres mm-hmm. i guess so like i yeah i always think of classically villains are, coded as queer to sort of enhance their sort of threatening otherness and so i guess it's like it's the horror of the other side it's the horror of a heterosexual viewpoint being threatened by a queer other as a villain and so to retell that standing on the other side it's very much like perspective i guess yeah i don't know if this is this makes sense with what you're saying but yeah bear with me that also with the work that we're talking about, it's about that push and pull of victim and victimizer, which is evident in horror genres specifically with, like you said, these sort of like queer-coded villains and stuff. Some of them really explicitly queer-coded. Like Nightmare on Elm Street 2 always gets like thrown around as being yeah. like the gayest horror, gayest movie. horror movie ever made. <laughs> or even, you know, um, um, uh, Ursula from yeah. The Little Mermaid, was famously modeled off divine and yeah and i mean like in the act of like the hollywood bigwigs making um their villains queer like further victimizes in a way queer people the history of that is something i find quite interesting like i don't actually know the exact date but early cinema was a little bit more was a little more worldly i guess is like a good euphemism for it in their depictions of people to a degree. And then there was this very conservative code of ethics was put in place called the Hayes Code. Like an actual code of what could and couldn't be put in movies in regards to morality. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, as a result, it's sort of where queer coding really got its cinematic roots and characters often being coded as queer to make them appear untrustworthy or like villainous unhanded underhanded kind of thing without ever explicitly saying that was why and i think that for a lot of moviegoers now where that's happening to villains like i don't even know if a lot of writers necessarily understand that that's what they're doing a lot of moviegoers and audience members also don't realize that that's what is being expressed to them they don't realize it's the association that's being made yeah i was thinking it folds back into a history of cinematic language that just like rotates and rotates and rotates and it becomes sort of how you create a mythology of a villain you incorporate these aspects of it because it references this film this film this film and this line of like character building that is quite far away from where it started i guess yeah it's the process of like something becoming naturalized as well so it becomes (laughs) harder to sort of unveil it or take the peek behind the curtain kind of thing because it's just sort of more curtain curtain after curtain after curtain you you do incorporate voice and text and voiceover to your work as well and I know you do have two versions currently of the work you made from Vada. 
And it's interesting to see it with both. And the language there is quite similar to Pony Play. Pony Play seems to have a quite a different set of filmic references visually as well. But like that teen speak that happens and the kind of fictitious way that teenagers are portrayed and how they speak in a way that isn't necessarily trying to be realistic. It's this hyper way of communicating of different sort of virtues, I guess, and character types. Things are made to sound vapid. Things are made to sound harsh or mean in a way that still makes you laugh, the mean girl sort of archetype. But at the same time, there's always, there's this like really heightened sense of drama of the way that I think it sort of hints at getting those big feelings that you feel when you're 14 years old, when everything means so much all the time. <laughs> Do you want to speak to language in, in, in pony play? I find that a big part of the way that I was using language in that was like, yeah, to sort of describe some of those things that you said just now, but also in a project that was in part like exploring queer friendships and things like that and these sort of queer family units that we make outside of like blood family that sounds real goth um bio like family. nuclear family um, yeah like that sort of things that uh, these sort of coded languages kind of describe a level of intimacy as well which is something i find really interesting when it's done in cinema because a lot of the time it feels forced like like you said like it feels unnatural like they're like this is how the teens speak we got a panel of like 40 year old dudes together and tested what words they think they've heard teens say and so we've chucked them in where a lot of the text elements in that video specifically were pulled from conversations that I've had with friends of mine and stuff around throughout the making process. The way that it started was my friend who I was working on it with initially and I, we wanted to like try our hand at screenwriting, like not understanding that there's a reason that people go to screenwriting school because it's the hardest task I've ever had to do. But we figured an easy way in would be to like record conversations we were having with our friends and then afterwards go and like transcribe them and sort of like Frankenstein a script together that achieved what we wanted. But we quickly realized that after like, yeah, after recording just a few conversations that the way that we were communicating with each other was like four people talking at once and then just like screaming, 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 like everyone talking over top of each other. Like it was incoherent to an outside observer, even us like after the fact going back to try and like access it. But at the time everyone's on the same page, like we are, it's like actual communication happening. It's not like four people talking over top of each other and nobody listening. It was just sort of yeah. like very like quick putting things up, putting things up, uh, picking things up, putting things down, like that sort of stuff. And then checked it with a lot of references to like different media and things, I guess is another, another element of it. Instead of saying the word that you want to say, saying a song title that has that word in it, like a patchwork of, media references and inside jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like those two Facebook robots that they made that they got to like talk to each other. They're sort of like the experiment in AI. 
Okay, I'm a little dusty. I haven't, this is quite a while ago that I was reading about this. But basically, two Facebook robots, some sort of like reward program set up between them for like developing language or whatever. And so quickly, after communicating quite normally and like really quickly descended into like having developed a code that was impenetrable to the observers and things, but they were communicating like perfectly with each other with this yeah, 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 yeah. weird code that they developed through language and through this like yeah, big thing about the like rewards receptor, how they uh, graded achievement within themselves or whatever. Yeah. But they had to like shut it down because it was, yeah, they basically were, <laughs> had developed a language like that couldn't be observed by anyone other than them. Yeah. Quite fun. I guess it's the same way, like thinking about Ryan Trey Carton's work and how dialogue works in his videos it is this sort of like internal logic. And I think it draws from like a similar kind of film reference in a particular kind of movie if you think of, you know, the headers, the spitting of insults, but come these catchphrases that people just want to mimic. There's this sort of mimicability of it. It's like, I want to sound like that. It's ridiculous, but I want to be that person. I want to be that audacious. What I find interesting with, with your text is it's much slower. Everything is being turned over like a rock and every little phrase is being inspected. Is that something you think about? Um... Yes, it was in part like a response to that sort of like inaccessibility of the source material Yeah, where I was trying to isolate like moments and things basically and kind of see how they'd exist outside of the context of this crazy ongoing conversation that they were originally initially part of and what sort of shift in meaning they would have, how they were without the rest of their word friends, without the yeah. things like buffing them, giving them a you know, contextual meaning. It had the potential to make it some these things somewhat more accessible because you have a little more time to like digest it. Things aren't lost in the slew of everything else, onslaught of other things. But by isolating them, there's also the possibility for them to become more impenetrable in that the meaning could be heightened by it being like put on a little pedestal. Do you want to talk about the video you made for the exhibition that I put on at PlayStation, Everything Forever? For those listening at home, the exhibition was called Imminent Domain. And in my head, it was sort of based around thinking about domesticity and queer domesticity. It was, it was you, Caitlin DeVoy, who's Wellington-based, and Jake Prabal, who's Melbourne-based. And Caitlin DeVoy had made these um, whipped cream cans casted in silicon on these motorized coffee tables that wobbled and there were, there were these domestic objects that were just oh equally like sexualized but equally so absurd that there was nothing sexual about them and your video everything forever also had this like really absurd funniness about it i guess i read it as home footage or the found footage horror movie trope because of the mask that you had in it mm-hmm. and then this like orchestral arrangement of Lady Gaga. Is it Poker Face? It was Poker Face, yeah. (laughs) Again, relating to horror in a different way, 
but yeah, that, that's still sort of very much in it. I think found footage is a fun way to look at it in that there was, for all intents and purposes, literal found footage in it, like an ongoing archive of things that I've, oh my God, to call my phone photos app an archive. It's like the worst thing that's ever come out of my mouth. But like the little videos that I take kind of throughout my day. And then this sort of forced found footage aesthetic, I guess you could call it, of like things being filmed with Handycam, which the kind of rise of these apps and software and things, I guess like beginning with Instagram ages ago, but sort of more like recently with these disposable camera apps and VHS apps, like to kind of convert these in some cases, really high quality phone videos and things that we're able to take now, which is sort of this like peak of engineering to then try and like compress them down to this like obsolete format for like aesthetic purposes. It's kind of like a interesting tension (laughs) to me. It's artifice because especially like with Instagram and putting photos online and using filters and playing around with those sorts of things. It's not like people are trying to convince you that they have used a disposable camera or bought a VHS tape. It's not trying to hide that it's a phone photo. It's like, here's the app. And quite often, like, you know, you'll see a little logo in the corner of that filter or the app that was used. So you've, you've got this sort of like relationship with film and genre as well. But do you see your work having a life on the internet about the internet what's the relationship there yeah no to quickly go back to pony play and sort of like a psychotic exercise of self immolation vine was kind of like happening at the time so each of those scenes and vignettes i had in seven seconds or less kind of thing right it's like a a, like restriction yeah restraint to I, i know i liked that seven seconds was sort of like this prescribed attention span or something like we can definitely hold your attention for seven seconds but we won't guarantee anything more a lot of the formatting and more formal elements of the videos that i've been making are definitely inspired by or taken from contemporary ways of viewing video everything forever was kind of like um found footage collage of like if you had someone's phone telling a story that is still somewhat inaccessible again because it's so like deeply personal set of references set of interests and things from what they've decided to like record and archive there i go again that sort of start to tell a story me and my flatmate elizabeth we have just tons of stupid videos on our phones from filming for the vlog glad we did that Um, yeah i love the vlog love the vlog (laughs) so we just have like tons of really dumb footage in our phones but it's really interesting when you our phone will make us videos using facial recognition technology Mm. it knows that i've been making that like it can draw out a whole snapshot of clips like a short film of all these clips of me and elizabeth and it's kind of bizarre they'll choose these snippets but it's all sort of random couple of seconds here a couple of seconds there and set it to its own music and have its own sort of cuts and stuff it's really strange it's like our phones are trying to make their own vlogs (laughs) 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 
and they're the funniest thing just because there is that sort of clumsiness of touch that comes of AI trying to like make something that's quite human which is like I guess a collage yeah that sort of clumsiness and jarringness that comes from technology doing something just like slightly off but in a lot of ways like scarily spot on (laughs) yeah well I guess especially when it's something that has elements of absurdity or like camp to it kind of like your vlog does it's like really funny and stuff that for this botched little device our phone to like i know it's kind of like cute it's like trying to participate and in being completely naive Mm. it ends up participating quite successfully like it falls within that same realm of camp theatrics or something Mm. Like the Facebook robots talking to each other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's this weird sort of thing of like technology trying to take our jobs <laughs> of being like they can, the way they learn or like do things. Yeah, I guess it's the, the, this is one of the things of sort of being a queer artist and making works about queerness is sort of participating in a discussion of identity politics. Like I get a lot of, I get a lot of questions, sometimes quite inappropriate from other people and sometimes it's like a little wink nudge kind of situation of this presumption that my work is autobiographical you know you're you're working in a genre there's a presumption of fiction but when you're using your own body there is also the the same presumption of autobiographical what's that like for you popular glory was very much like it's at its inception or whatever was sort of personal experience and like you know autobiographical i guess which felt very important at the time and very sort of like urgent and afterwards it felt really good i had qualms about doing something so autobiographical and that i was like well my experience speak to the experience of other people or well, it limit it's like reach an impact, and to me that would like if it did that, it was not a worthwhile exercise. Like if it was something that was like, here, let me like sit down and let me tell you my story. Mm. But no, I had some really, really like great conversations with people after viewing it, and realized that it was a way to start a conversation. If you sort of can, I guess, yeah, I'm speaking specifically to the version with the voiceover. If you really bear your soul a little bit or whatever like share something personal about yourself or something that's like scary or like that you feel the need to like keep private but it's probably better being cast out into the light it allows or opens up yeah opens up the floor for other people to talk about their experiences with the same thing or even just share support for it or talk about other things, challenge you on it even, which is like quite nice sometimes, especially when it comes to things around like anxiety and identity. I think it's like really important to have room for being challenged. And sometimes it's kind of the best way to crush something that is like eating you up or whatever. There's, yeah. Yeah, I guess like a cinematic trope of someone being like, poor, poor me and someone else being like, get a fucking grip like this is not important this is not that bad yeah like that yeah that 
Kardashians moment. There's like there are people that are dying, Ken, or whatever, when she loses her earrings. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you feel like you're moving away from that, or is that still very much a part of like your ongoing thinking about making work is centering yourself in a certain way for storytelling? I'm sort of like, I guess, moving away from it a little. It was also a useful exercise in terms of navigating performance, I guess, in that it, it was easier to tell my own story or perform my own story. I felt very like safe using that as the source material and like building on it from there kind of thing. I didn't feel like I was inserting myself into a conversation or anything like that. And I guess like just with the stuff that I'm interested in, they'll always be a kind of like autobiographical element or like an element of the personal which is important to me but it's shifting a little bit moving a little bit further away from it do you think you'd explore performance sort of away and separate from the camera well yeah my i was like a complete nutbag for theater all my childhood and adolescent life at one stage i was doing like three or four theater classes a week and like different kind of like theater things so that's i love the idea of live performance in that regard and i think that there's a lot of interesting things you can do i kind of love the analog element of it like if you want special effects you've got to find a way to like rig them up you've got to get those confetti cannons you've got to get that bucket of blood to like drop from the ceiling or whatever do you collaborate a lot yeah i'd love to (laughs) i think that like without sounding too corny almost all of my work is like a collaboration with my friends that gloria nacho you talked about like the week leading up to it i had like a carousel of like friends coming and going to like put beads on strings or like dust something and like sand like da 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 like would not have come together without them and then yeah pony play very much the same so in formal degree i yeah always collaborating because <laughs> you because you you work primarily as a stylist right now yes yeah I guess that's sort of similar way. You're working as part of a crew. I find it interesting with Chris Urotupu's work, who has big theatre and film background, has worked as an art director and moving into video art, seeing the way that he, those things inform how he works, um, like going away for a shoot on the weekend and then getting handed a full schedule for the weekend of location, shoot, time, wrap up, people needed equipment, gear, blah, 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 blah. And I kind of love seeing that, like, oh, true, like, in my head, art isn't that organized. <laughs> yeah. Do you think one informs the other in terms of, like, your stylist work, your artwork, or vice versa? I feel like I'm constantly trying to bring them closer and closer together until the point where they're, like, so entrenched in each other's like the yeah the two practices are like inseparable from it becomes like a the other practice what would that look it's like? similar to what you're saying about chris's stuff i find i've been loving like seeing these sort of much larger scale like video productions happening because of like it's kind of a relief to see how how many people it takes to make something like that like mm. even if it's just a 
30 second TV commercial, you've got like a crew of a hundred people yeah. all doing specific things. I'm like, but even on smaller jobs and things with smaller crews, it's like, okay, you can get this shot in like a day if you really have to. I'm like, what's stopping me? <laughs> like I should, I've, I've been wanting to play around with treating my endeavors in video art to like the commercial stuff that I've been working on where I mm. will um, give myself a little call sheet, you know, be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, do yeah. all of that sort of stuff. I do have one question. We'll make it the last one. Who would your dream collab be? Like your dream fashion house collab? Dream fashion house collab. Like, oh my god! Make, like a video, you were gonna sort of just like run a campaign. You were gonna make like I don't know a Givenchy horror movie or something. <laughs> <laughs> what would that be? Oh wow! I feel endless possibility. Think this is a real tough question. This is the toughest question I've ever been asked. In fact, there's so many things to factor in. Like, I think that. It's not my like fave label in the world or anything like that, but to make a horror movie with Gucci as it stands now for costume alone would be an absolute wild ride. I would, I would uh, die for that campy glam that they've got going on. Big British stone villa. I'm saying, oh, not the villa. What do you call it? Like um, manor. Omen vibes, oh, Rosemary's okay. Baby, that sort of a thing. Little, a yeah. little gothic, but like uh-huh. money, Gucci glam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and they've got they've got they have like a um, pack of dogs, <laughs> like greyhounds, in like cute little jackets mm-hmm. that are just like. Oh yeah, they're they're all wearing Gucci like, as well, darting around the back of the estuaries. <laughs> <laughs> No, all um, all animal actors in this movie would be wearing Gucci also. The horses, everyone. I love it. I can't wait to see it. Do you have a release date? I'll cold call Alessandro, whatever his name is, <laughs> at Gucci. Be like, I've got the film for you. This is the only call you're going to want to take this year. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And I think that's us. Thanks for waking up early. No, thank you so much for your time and energy and everything. It was really great talking with you. You've been listening to Circuit Cast with myself, Robbie Hancock, and our guest, Zach Stein Fox. Thanks to Creative New Zealand for their support. Thanks for listening.